Listener Production. Some of the greatest moments in political history are no accident. When a leader speaks and connects to an audience, it's no fluke. Behind the great words we remember from a politician, there is someone who can claim those words and, behind the scenes, claim credit. I'm Adam Peacock, and on this episode of Peacock Politics, I'm going to dip into the art form that is speechwriting, how it's done, why it's so important, and whether it can make or break a political career. My guest is Terry Zuplat, who has been around the American political scene for over two decades. And yeah, Peacock Politics is aimed at Australian politics, but with speechwriting, I reckon the same rules apply. And given Terry was a speechwriter for a bloke named Barack Obama, 44th President of the United States of America, Barack Obama, well, when the chance popped up to chat, I'd be an idiot to say no. Terry, thank you for joining me on Peacock Politics. How are you? Great. Thanks for having me. We'll start at the end. What makes a great speech? No, I think uh, when you look through history and you look at some of the great speeches that people tend to remember most, there are two or three things that these, you know, great speeches have. You think of FDR after Pearl Harbor, you think of Martin Luther King on the steps, the Lincoln Memorial, the two two great speeches that that we think of here in the United States and every country has them. But they they have several things. One is they they truly speak to the moment, um, a sort of pivotal moment in the life of a country and in the course of human history around the world. And I think they offer a vision, uh, a way forward. Um, and I think the best ones are ones that also offer hope. Um and a positive vision of the future. And so I think as, as your listeners think of speeches that are important in their own lives that they think of, um, I think what you have is a sort of pivotal moment, someone truly speaking to that moment and offering a way forward uh, to hopefully a kind of a better, safer, more just future. So that's the end of the process, but obviously a lot goes into it, the actual process to get to that point and the point where in two, three, four decades' time, you're still remembering what was said, like some of those examples there. So let's go back to the start now. What's the, the golden rule or rules of speech writing, in your opinion? You know, um, I think one of, the, one of the golden rules actually stems from a mistake that a lot of people make. Um, when people are writing... And I think this is true in politics and business and entertainment or sports, what, what, whatever. People have a tendency sometimes to write um, about the audience instead of speaking directly to the audience. Um, and what makes a speech unique, um, different from an article in the newspaper, different from an essay, different from a, a research paper, is that a speech is meant to be delivered and, you know, a living, breathing human being is going to stand up in front of other living, breathing human beings, whether it's a small audience of a few dozen or a huge audience of thousands or a global audience of people and speak directly to that audience. And so I think one of the things that a, that a speaker and a speechwriter who works with them always has to remember is, who am I speaking to? Who, who is the audience here? Um, there's the immediate audience that you're with. If you're an elected leader, there's the audience at home. And I think sometimes, uh, and I even sometimes still catch myself failing to do this, I'll, I'll be writing about, um, I think a lot of presidential candidates and candidates for prime minister do this too sometimes. You hear them speaking about the American people, the Australian people, the people, people of this province or that state. They ought to be using the word you. They ought to be speaking directly through the camera to the audience, to the people watching and listening at home. 
And I, I see that here in the United States still. Um, candidates often make that mistake. They speak about the American people in sp- instead of to them. They, uh, they say they instead of you. Uh, and so I think you need to make a, you know, the most effective speeches, the ones that people remember the most, are the ones where they feel the, the person is speaking directly to them, even if they're not there in the room with them. But they, they, they feel like that person is speaking and having a conversation with them, not, not orating at them the way politicians used to do a century ago uh, with language that we don't use anymore, but hmm. someone who is truly speaking directly to the audience. What about the absolute don't do's? And we're not just talking about speeches here where it's all light and fluffy and you're trying to, you know, build a base and win an election. There's sometimes you have to do speeches when things aren't going so well. Right. I'm guessing profanity is one thing to leave out of a speech because otherwise it becomes memorable for other reasons. But it depends. <laughs> are there other don't do's? Yeah, it depends on who you are. Maybe 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 some profanity is uh, works once in a while. Uh, yeah, you have to be careful. You don't want to turn the audience on. Um, yeah, I think one of the one. I mean, just definitely one of the do's is, is is speak to your audience. Don't speak at them or um, don't speak about them as if they're not there. I think one of the hardest things to do, and I think a lot of people don't always get it right, is how do you speak to an audience where you have to deliver a tough message that maybe they don't want to hear, and there it can so easily go awry. You know, there are times when a lot of you know maybe you're a coach, maybe you're a business leader, and it's been a rough quarter, a rough year. You're an elected official. There's a tendency sometimes to deliver hard messages in a way that comes across as like a lecture and as a put down. And obviously, it's, it goes without saying you should never put down your audience, but you see it over and over again, people making that mistake. I, I think that's one of the it's, it's one of the trickiest things to do. And I think a lot of people don't get it right. We'll go to the embryonic stages again of, of writing a speech how it transforms from an idea where, okay, when you were working for President Obama, for instance, uh, Terry, we need a, a speech on a certain topic. You were national security mainly involved in that. So you were doing a lot of foreign policy speeches. So how does it get to, Terry, we need a speech, uh, President Obama is speaking in, I don't know what the turnaround is for a speech from time to time. You can take us through the process. How does it get from that idea, the initial stages of putting something down into words? Yeah, the first stage is panic. <laughs> even uh, even late, even at year eight of writing for President Obama, there was always a little bit of panic and anxiety involved in it. But you know, I can take one one set of speeches as an example. Uh, as you said, I was one of his foreign policy speechwriters, and one of the sort of most memorable trips that that I ever had with him was when we came to Australia in um, November of 2011, and he addressed uh, the Australian Parliament. And that's a big deal when a president gets the opportunity and the honor of addressing a foreign parliament. And it was decided by sort of the president and his key national security advisors, you know, weeks before the, the trip that, that he would use that speech to really lay out uh, his vision for America's role in the Asia Pacific for, you know, the years to come. And it's still, you know, 2011, it's his first term. So it really could be one of these sort of seminal speeches to really uh, shape his foreign policy. And so usually a speech like that would start with a, a private meeting with the president in the Oval Office. Uh, not every speech, obviously, but but the bigger ones. And so a year, uh, let's say about a week or two before the speech, before we'd leave, we'd sit down with him in the Oval Office and get his, get his initial guidance, sort of what he wanted to, you know, the big themes he wanted to hit. That was so important because as in the intervening weeks between that moment and the moment when he 
you know, takes the, takes the lectern to actually give the speech, there are all sorts of equities, not only across the White House and our National Security Council, but across our government in terms of security issues, trade issues, economic issues, human rights issues. And, you know, you can't say everything in every speech. And so as a speechwriter, you're making choices every single day, what fits, what doesn't, uh, what can be included, what doesn't. And knowing, you know, having had that initial conversation with the president at the beginning of the process allowed us to then make informed choices every day about what to include and what to not. And, you know, the editing, um, everyone would, you know, dozens of people will get a chop at it. But ultimately, you can't have a speech that's written by committee. Um, one of the things about being a speechwriter is you're the one who has to synthesize all those competing ideas and competing inputs. Um, and those continue all the way, you know, when you're on the plane, on Air Force One, flying, you know, two days to Australia. Uh, it's including, you know, in the motorcade as you're, as you're arriving at Parliament. It's uh, in, the, in the hold room when we're waiting to go out. You know, President Obama loved to... Love to edit right into the last minutes. I remember that speech. I remember being in that room uh, down the hall from the main chamber and he was still editing <laughs> uh, right up until a few minutes before we went out. Um, and so it's, it's um, oftentimes the president would see, finally get to see the, you know, the speech three or four nights before he give it. And, you know, each day we'd go around or two, depending on how much time he had to, to make sure it was again, sort of tracking with that, initial guidance that he gave in that meeting, you know, weeks before, but it's a, uh, it's a process. I, I mean, I personally love doing it. And in that particular case, you know, I got to, I was one of the few staffers who got to sit there in the, in the chamber when he gave that address and to be a part of that process from that first meeting weeks before uh, all the way to that moment, which was a kind of a big moment for, for the president's uh, Asia policy and our relationship with Australia. I mean, just, it's just awesome. It's an awesome process to be a part of. Yeah, well, that particular speech probably turned out a bit better than when the, the Simpsons came to Australia and Homer was put up in front of Parliament and that famous scene in that particular episode of that wonderful <laughs> series that's been going on for half my life. But uh, yeah, just back to when you initially brought it up, you mentioned there that you're in the Oval Office and you're bouncing around ideas. Is is it the president or the person who is delivering the speech who is generally coming up with the ideas or are you feeding along with who else is there feeding ideas and bouncing ideas around? I have to say, one of the things that I think made President Obama very unique was that I think everyone in the White House recognized that he was speech writing and and the delivery of speeches as a unique strength. And there was, we were given, I thought we were very fortunate, we were given the access we needed. So, for example, I can't remember exactly who was in that particular meeting, but for a meeting like that, you would often have, you know, one or two speech writers, you might have the National Security Advisor. Um, and maybe, you know, the head of our Asia office. Uh, not, not a huge group. Um, and that was by design, right? Because at that moment, uh, the purpose of that meeting is not to hear from every office that has a kind of stake in the policy. The purpose of the meeting is to, for the speechwriters to hear directly from the president what, you know, he wants, he or she wants, in this case, what he wants. And with the president, you know, it would always depend, it would depend on the speech of, uh, Sometimes he would come to the meeting with very, very specific ideas. Sometimes he might even have kind of an outline in his head. Uh, other times he might have a, he might not necessarily have the outline or the structure, but he would have sort of the core central idea that he wanted, you know, the audience left with when the speech was done. And, and both were, both were useful. Both were, 
incredibly important. You know, we, we need to leave a meeting like that with a pretty clear sense of what he wanted. And that allowed us to then, again, like I said, make those thousands of little choices in the course of editing and writing uh, to make sure it stayed consistent to his vision. Yeah, I, I guess, I mean, you're the extreme example of one of the great orators of, of modern times in Barack Obama, that he could get across how he felt about a particular subject really, really well with how he delivered it. But not all politicians are like that. Some need their hand held a little bit more, do they, in, sure. in the art of actually what you're writing for them? Sure. Like your job with President Obama was uh, simple in some ways, but more difficult in others because oh, of yeah. the way that he delivered I mean, it. It was simple in that uh, if you could if you could produce a quality draft, you know, when he went out to deliver it, he could take it to a whole nother level. Um, it was hard and terrifying because you know, in the back of our minds, we always knew that if he had the time to do it himself, he'd come up with a much better speech than we ever would. <laughs> so you're writing, yeah, you're writing for someone who, you know, he burst on the scene in 2004 with uh, with a speech. You know, that's that's not that common for a politician to do that. But that spoke to his writing abilities, his oratorical skills. Um, well, yeah, everybody's different. Every every speaker has different strengths and, and weaknesses, and it's your job as a speechwriter to you know, you know you're there to help them be their best self, and so you're you're there to help them avoid any pitfalls or if they have um, you know if they're not funny, don't <laughs> don't give them a don't don't give them big jokes to deliver because they can't do it, uh, and you're just setting them setting them up to fail. Uh, if they're great storytellers, you can you can weave stories in. Uh, if they can really deliver a line and a punchline, you can you can write your sentences accordingly. Um, so yeah, and and over time, I mean, one of the sort of crazy things about a speechwriter is the longer you write for someone, you know, you really do hear voices in your head. Uh, you hear their voice in your head all the time as you write, and even sometimes when you're not writing, which kind of gets scary. <laughs> but you you are you are trying to provide the script for that person, right? That unique person. And uh, if you were ever as a speechwriter thrust into an awful situation where you had to write three speeches for three different speakers back to back about the same topic, you know, you would, you, you do your job, right? You write each one differently, right? You're writing for that person, for their voice. Uh, and every, and all of us speak and think differently. Um, you and I would both give a, you know, someone said, give a speech about, you know, football, we would, we would come at it totally differently. Uh, it's a speechwriter's job to know, know how, how their boss speaks, how they think, you know, how they structure an argument, how they either make their case, how they build to. And he, you know, again, he was, he was great at it. You're essentially writing for a character then. You're a screenwriter, not so much a speechwriter. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I've, I've sometimes uh, people have asked me, you know, what form of writing is this most similar to? And, you know, I've often said it's, it's, it's like writing a play. I, I really do. I think when you think about it, you know, what is a play? What is a speech? You know, again, uh, a living, breathing person walks out on a stage and as a speechwriter, you're providing that script from the moment they say hello to the moment they say thank you very much at the end. And whether it's a five minute play or speech or 30 and 40 minute presentation, your job is to carry that that person through that experience. And number one, hopefully, again, connect with that audience that's right in front of them. You know, when President Obama spoke to the Australian Parliament, he was speaking, of course, first and foremost, to the, to the members who were there to his left and to his right and to sit seated right in front of him. But he was speaking also to the people of Australia all across the country. He was speaking, because we decided to make a speech about Asia, he was speaking to 
people in cap, you know, leaders in capitals all across the region, people in countries all across the region with different cultures, different histories, different backgrounds. There's all these different audiences that, that you're writing for all at once. Time is usually a bit of a problem for a high ranking politician, probably none more <laughs> high ranking in the Western world at the very least than uh, the person that you used to write speeches for. So how does that affect the process? You mentioned before about how you're sitting in the motorcade, you're sitting on Air Force One. We've seen a lot of it on the movie, so we know what Air Force One, um, how it's all laid out. I think we, I think I know that plane better than a, a usual plane that I go on. But how does that affect the process when the person you're writing for is so time poor? Well, you know, on on one extreme, you know, like that Austra- the the Parliament speech, you know, we had that meeting with him and had maybe two weeks to to make it happen, to flush it out, to play around with it. You know, there are you know awful moments when there are terrorist attacks or particularly, uh, you know, awful things that, you know, is unfolding a shooting here in the United States where the president has to go out in a matter of an hour or two. And, and yeah, the, the process is completely different. You don't have two weeks to, to think and to, to, to play around with ideas. You just, uh, the, the less time you have, you just have to start all the, the reason, all the time that you enjoy for research and for thinking, it just collapses and you have, you sometimes just have to start writing at that moment, you have maybe an hour to, you know, if, uh, one of the speeches that I worked on was when our, uh, there was a terrorist attack in, in, uh, in Boston during, uh, during our Boston marathon. And, and that unfolded over the course of hours. And, and the first time he went out, I, I think we just, we just started writing. So um, it, that changes the whole process. Yeah. All the, all the leisurely, you know, the things, all the things, I love about speech writing, being able to play with language and develop language and try to come up with the most compelling way to, to make a point. You, you don't, the less time you have, you just can't do that. You kind of run on instinct a little bit more. And you make sure that you got your thesaurus with you at all times? You know, the interesting thing is uh, that go, that sort of goes to another issue, right? Is that is how, how our leaders speak to us. Um, and I find that if, um, if you're kind of consulting a thesaurus a lot in writing a speech for say an elected official, you may, you may not be using words that that are familiar or common hmm. to to your audience. You know, one of the one of the things we always like to say in our office was uh, if you if you can't say it in a bar, don't put it in a speech. You know, you're going back to this point of, you know, you're supposed to be speaking directly to someone. You're supposed to be having kind of a conversation with them. You're supposed to be connecting with them on intellectually, emotionally. You know, you would never you would never talk to someone at a bar and pull out your thesaurus to try to come up with the right word. To, you know. So I've tr- I try not to do that. I, in fact, most of the speechwriters that I've worked with, they, we tend not to do that for that reason, because right? we're, we're trying to speak to people the way you'd want to be spoken to and not have the speaker trying to like blow your mind with, with words you've never heard. Back to the, the screenwriter-actor comparison that we made before, is a speechwriter only as good as how the politician can actually deliver what's been written or can one cover the other? You know, we often talk about it as a as a partnership, as a collaboration, as as a mind meld. I think uh, the speechwriter can help make the speaker better. I think the speaker can push the speechwriter to be better. I mean, I would like to think that because we we were writing for Barack Obama, we were constant. As I said, you know, there was always this sort of terror in the back of your mind that nothing you could do would be as good as what he would write. Um, so it pushed us to be better. Um, but yeah, I do think there's a limit. I mean, I, you know, some people cannot deliver a line. They can't, they can't hold an audience. Um, yeah, I think there's a limit. 
and and like I said, we were we were really lucky. I mean, we always tried to give Barack Obama, you know, A plus work and and our best. Um, but no matter how no matter how good we thought we did, um, he always seemed to be able to take it to another level in terms of his delivery. And you know, either either know where to pause, you don't. You know how to deliver a line, or you don't. Um, I think it can be learned over time, and you can get better over time. And as a speaker, you can get better. But um, sometimes you either just have it or you don't. Is political speech writing removed from other speech writing? For instance, you're, you're in the what we call the private sector now, so you're working with CEOs mm-hmm. or bosses to, to help them deliver big words to <laughs> their employees, for instance. But is, is it different from outside looking in? I reckon it would be because a politician is there to make a connection with an audience and the audience is the people that give that politician a job right. essentially at the ballot box. So is speech writing in that regard removed because of that reason? It's a different sphere. You know, I don't think so. I really don't. I mean, I've, like you said, I've, I've written for elected officials. I've written for business leaders. I've written for folks in, from Hollywood and entertainment. You know, if, if there's a moment when someone has to stand up in front of another group of people, and deliver some sort of speech, no, no matter what the topic is, the basic, the basic do's and don'ts are all the same. I mean, you still have to, you still have to grab the audience at the very beginning. You've got to hold them throughout the speech. You know, you've got to engage them intellectually. You've got to move them emotionally. You need to galvanize and mobilize them to action. That's true, whether it's voters or um, a jury or, you know, shareholders, stock, stockholders, I think the the basics are are the same, and I think that's why you see you know, people like me. You know, you know, we kind of go in and out of government, and basically do the same same thing for folks in all walks of life. Mm. You know, I, I think it's and it's true whether you're a small town, you know, mayor or a big city mayor or governor of a state or a province. I mean, it's all or you know, you stand up in front of your hundred employees or your ten employees. The basic task is the same. You got to connect with people. You got to move people. You got to, you know, inspire people. It's actually more similar than than people think. It's it's harder to write short speeches than it is long speeches because you know uh, there's there's I'm going to get it wrong, but there's an old saying that you know if I can if you want me to speak for uh, 30 minutes, I can get started right now. You know, if you want me to uh, speak for three minutes, it's going to take me weeks to write that. You know, it's it's hard it's hard to be brief. And it forces you to think, uh, you really think about what, what it is you're saying. Is that the speechwriter's version of drinking? It's uh, one's too many and ten's not enough yeah, right, mentality. Right. Hey, just in regards to when the delivery, the, the, the final step as well, does it differ when, and I've noticed obviously when the president, they're sitting in the Oval Office, they've got something serious to say to the American people, they're off a teleprompter. It happens a little bit here in Australia as well, as opposed to when they've just got the piece of paper, they're bare without the teleprompter, they're having to either look down or remember what is in the speech, does that differ in in the writing and delivery process from from your point of view? You, you mentioned teleprompters. You know, we've we've I don't know if you've had this in Australia, but you know, we, from time to time we have we have politicians here who, you know, they like to they like to slam Obama on this. You know, like oh, he's relying on the teleprompter again. And it was a very very transparent and deliberate attempt to sort of deprive him of one of his strengths. Right, one of his everyone acknowledged one of his strengths was 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 being able to stand up and deliver a compelling speech and really kind of maybe change the way people think about an issue. So they would always, always hit him for a, a quote unquote reading off the teleprompter. Um, it's the same speech, whether you hold it in your hands or whether you're looking it up on the screen, mm. 
it's the same process. The president has had the same role. Um, it's their words. It's their vision. It's their views and their values. So, but yeah, no, we get it, it's the same process. You look at the guy who came after him in the Oval Office. Do I have to? Do you thank yourself sometimes that you're not his speechwriter because he he, he does seem to go off script sometimes, just occasionally. A little bit, a few times. <laughs> yeah, no, a lot, uh, almost always. And you can tell when uh, you can tell when he is reading something. Uh, it's, it's like he's sort of a, in a hostage video. He's reading it under duress. There's there's very little emotion. It's very rote. Yeah. So you, 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 when he goes off, you can almost hear the speechwriter in the back. Oh, that's it. I'm done. I've, I've had enough. I've, I've, why? Why? Why am I doing this? They're questioning my life choices right now. Anyway, it's. Uh, although, although I have a feeling in his case, his uh, his speechwriters, you know, they made their choices long ago. They they knew exactly. Uh, they knew exactly what he is and and what he represents. So uh, and and with him, you know, his whole shtick is he's he's not a politician. So him going off script is is very much part of the shtick. Uh, for him, it's uh, it's very deliberate, and uh, his supporters uh, clearly like that. Even even uh, maybe when it's not coherent, put it nicely. <laughs> I'm guessing though, for yourself, you're happy that you got into speech writing. So how did you get into speech writing, and it, how did it lend its way to eventually you stepping out of the White House and ending up on a podcast talking about Australian politics? Oddly enough, <laughs> right. Uh, it's been a dream of my life to be on your podcast. Yeah. So it, it all worked. It all, um, you know, I, growing up, I was always interested in government and politics. I came to Washington, D.C. to go to college because I wanted to kind of be where, where it was all happening. When I was in college, I got an internship um, for one semester. I was able to work as an intern at the White House, and I was assigned to the White House speechwriting office. And so there I was, this you know, 21 year old kid in the office with the national security speechwriters to then president Clinton. And I got to see them work. I, they let me take a few uh, passes at a draft and then wisely took it away from me and, and, and rewrote everything I wrote because uh, I did not know what I was doing, but I just thought that that was, you know, that at 21 years old, I thought that was a, one of the coolest jobs in the world. I mean, to help, to help the president of the United States, not only sort of communicate his vision, to the American people, but, to the world. And about 14 years later, I was lucky enough to, to come back to the White House, not as an intern, but as the speechwriter, the national security speechwriter myself, and do that job. And I, I still, it's still, I think, one of the greatest honors I had in my life uh, to be able to do that, to help, to help people around the world, you know, including in Australia, just, you know, understand who, who the American people are, Hopefully, you know, at our best, uh, the last few years have been difficult. Uh, I don't, I don't think we've shown the world, you know, our best. Um, and so I, I'm hoping that we'll, you all get to see kind of the, the better side of America again, but to, that, that's how I got started. I got started as an intern. Never know where it leads. That's a, that's I a know. cool story. Do you have an understanding about how it works here in Australia? Obviously the president's office, I, I dare say there's a bit of a budget there for everything and they want to get everything right. And you've got a team of speech writers working with the president, but does it differ much from here in Australia? Do you, do you know much about that space? You know, I don't know. I, I will say this. When we when we came to Australia uh, in two, November of 2011, uh, we did what we did every time we, we traveled the country, just like our policy experts would work together. We would reach out to speechwriters and we reached out. And I was 
um, connected with uh, Prime Minister Gillard, speechwriter uh, and advisor, a guy named Michael Cooney, and uh, got to know him a little bit and worked with him and, again, try to understand the, the Australian way. And he actually became a, a friend. We, we hung out. We had beers when we were there for the visit. And there was a, an event that um, the night, uh, the first night we arrived, there was a, you know, a dinner. And we thought it'd be a fun idea if, um, you know, there's been all sorts of discussion about the Australian language, you know, sort of losing its uh, unique identity over the years. And, and we thought it would be what better tribute, what, what better way to pay respects to our hosts than maybe to have President Obama uh, try to speak a little strine. Uh, that could be, that could go horribly wrong in, in so many different ways and basically uh, be the end of the visit right there. But you know, we work closely with the prime minister's office and, and with Michael Cooney and, and batted around some ideas. And, you know, we came up with something and, you know, we don't, we don't share drafts, but we, we talk, sort of talk things out. And what, what if he said, what if president Obama said the following, you know, would that be embarrassing? You know, would that, would that, would that destroy us Australian relations for all time or could it get a chuggle, you know? And so, uh, so to this day, Michael and I stay in touch and, um, yeah, I consider him a friend. So there's this, there is a, uh, I think there's a bit of a global network of speechwriters out there. Yep. It's a union. So you, you think the same and, and appreciate the, <laughs> the line of work you're in. I think so. And I, and I think that, you know, the challenge, a lot of the challenges are, are very similar, just, you know, country to country, language to language. Again, when, when someone has to stand up in front of another group of people, whether they're parliamentarians or workers or students the basic challenge is the same. You've got to, you've got to connect with them on some level, emotionally, intellectually, culturally, and you got to move them and you got to try to reach people. And that and there's a thousand different ways to do that, but the basic, the basic task is the same. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, when we went to Darwin with uh, Prime Minister Gillard and the president, and the prime minister gave some speeches to some military personnel in this like thousand degree hanger the <laughs> hottest i've ever been in my life yeah Darwin. Um, yeah. and he gave this uh you know he said something to the effect of hey i hear you all have this cheer out here and he's i want to hear how it goes and he said he said like aussie 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 and everyone everyone you know yelled back uh that came to us from the bus driver <laughs> you know on the way to the on the way to the event i was asked you know i always like to sort of strike up a conversation with just folks, you know, that we meet. And, and I said, uh, Hey, we're, we're trying to think of a fun way to s- start to speech. And, um, you know, the bus driver told me, he said, Oh, we've got this great cheer here. I bet you'd be a lot of fun. We threw it in. <laughs> so things come from, you know, it's a, one of the things I love about it is just, it really just lets, it's a wonderful way to just really get to know another country and get to know other people. And in a way that a lot of my colleagues, you know, had no business, no reason to speak to the bus driver. Yeah. Uh, but a lot of our best ideas came from just talking with, you know, the bartender, the waiter, the bus driver, and folks we were interacting with at the hotels or even on the street. Cool. Hey, before we let you go, we can't not ask the couple of questions that you probably get asked whenever you're out or meet people. Oh, what's it like? I'll ask a couple of specific ones though. We have a great understanding of the White House, basically through Hollywood, um, everything right. that happens and how it looks. And- out, the speechwriters are always the best looking ones. You notice that? <laughs> <laughs> Which well, is totally true. I wasn't going to say anything. We should we should make this a vodcast. I mean, seriously. Right, right. Hey, but <laughs> the 
the best thing about working in the White House that we might not know already, thanks to Hollywood? Mm. Have you got one? Uh, best thing is, uh, I'm not going to lie, uh, riding on Air Force One was, even after eight years, was still cool. It, there's nothing like that when that plane takes off and lands in another country and you you get to be on that plane helping kind of to represent the United States. It's not that, you know, it's, it's a work plane. Uh, it's, it's designed for us to be working <laughs> the entire flight. Uh, you know, they, they, they bring us food so we don't get up. <laughs> they give us blankets so we don't get up. Uh, we keep working, but it's, it's pretty cool. I, I don't, anyone who tells you it's not, they're, they're not being honest with you. It's really awesome. And a favorite story about the president and working with the president of the United States in Barack Obama. Oh gosh, there's so many. Um, the uh, you know there was this is sort of a, I think we all have this moment. A number of my colleagues have written books, and and uh, you know he President Obama was great, but but he did have a way of kind of reminding you where the where the <laughs> what the hierarchy was. And I think one time in a meeting in the Oval Office, I got a little too comfortable, and maybe you know someone had made a joke, and and here I am. I'm like, God, this is amazing. I'm in the Oval Office. I'm going to crack a joke too, and. And at that point, I think I misread the audience. Uh, it had turned rather serious. And he looked at me and said, uh, uh, Terry, do you have anything serious to offer? <laughs> at which point, I think I actually shrunk uh, in front. <laughs> I did felt myself sinking into the couch. Uh, he said it with a smile, but I could tell he was, uh, I had misjudged the audience. <laughs> but uh, uh, no, he was, uh, he was other, he was one of the, uh, he, he, you know, he was a dad and he had a dad's way of dealing with us. And so if he, you know, if he didn't like the speech, he, he wouldn't yell at us and scream at us, but he would say, uh, you know, I think we have, uh, I don't give this speech for another four days, which means we have four days to, to make it better, <laughs> which was his way of saying it wasn't where it needed to be then. Um, or he'd say, you know, this is a beautiful six-page speech. I bet you it could be a fantastic four-page speech. <laughs> Which is nice of him because he could make it into a paper airplane and throw it back at you and say, get out. He could. And there are all, all sorts of stories of presidents, you know, treating their staff uh, and their speechwriters like that. But, you know, I, I have to say it was not only was it nice, it was it was pretty smart from his standpoint, right? Because, you know, I, we had, you know, pour our heart and soul into every speech and we thought, you know, again, we want to do A plus every time that if maybe we missed, but he knew we had to actually go back down. You know, our office was right below the Oval Office. We had to go back downstairs into our cave and we had to do it again. And if he crushed us and broke our spirit, we weren't going to be able to do our job. And so he was, you know, it was nice, but it was also smart. And it's, and it do, it made us go back and want to, want to do better as opposed to throwing the paper at our face or, you know. Well, Terry, I have a, bit more of an understanding about what goes into writing a speech and a little bit more about President Obama as well. So thank you so much for taking the time to chat to us on Peacock Politics and uh, catch you sometime in real life one day soon. That sounds great. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Peacock Politics was presented by me, Adam Peacock, producer Tina Matilov, sound production by Darcy Thompson. Theme music composed by Matthew Dwyer, executive producer Jennifer Goggin. Listener.